Welcome to another episode of Respond to Resilience, along with my co-host, Bonnie Rumley, LCSW, EMTB. I'm David Dashinger. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Stephen Wilcox. He's the Director of Education for Frontline CT, talking about their first responder peer support program and the stigma around first responders and mental health. Like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Respond to Resilience. We're also on Facebook at the Responder Wellness Inc. page. We're on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and check out our website, respondertv.com, for all the past episodes. So we'll be right back to speak with Steve after this. In this family, more of us die by our own hands than by the hazards of the job. In this family, up to a quarter of 911 dispatchers have symptoms of PTSD. In this family, our mental health and wellness are in crisis while responders are quietly suffering. In this family, many struggle with job-related stress, burnout, trauma, sleep disruption, substance abuse, and marriage problems. In this family, we can help the helpers with vital information and resources, resilient strategies, and success stories of overcoming the obstacles. In this family, no one is alone. Welcome to Responder Resilience with co-hosts, retired Lieutenant David Dashinger, Dr. Stacy Raymond, and Bonnie Rimley, LCSW, EMTB. And today we're going to be speaking with Stephen Wilcox. Steve has been a paramedic for over 20 years. Uh, he also worked for five years in the corrections and was a member of the Connecticut National Guard for six years. Steve has a bachelor's in psychology from WestCon, and he's currently in the master's program at Winder University. Welcome to Respond to Resilience, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Welcome, Steve. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thanks. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what led you to pursue a career as a paramedic. Um, I was in corrections, uh, right about the two and a half year mark in my career when, uh, I sought sobriety, I had alcohol use issues. Um, and it was after that, after that transition from active alcohol addiction to sobriety that I realized corrections wasn't a really good fit for me. Um, so the initial plan was to take an EMT course start working as an EMT and work on nursing. Uh, I always had an interest in medicine and I started working as an EMT in about the first semester in, I did okay college with the nursing prerequisites, but I really liked working on the road. And I was at Nautic Valley Community College in Waterbury and they offered a paramedic program. And I convinced my wife that, Hey, let me do the, the pivot to that. Um, and I remember calling a friend of mine who was really supportive. My first two weeks cleared as a paramedic. I believe the phrase I told him was, I think I finally found what I was put here to do. Love being, I still love being a paramedic after, after 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time with the MS, though, your body doesn't love being a paramedic after 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Along that vein, um, I bet doing it for 20 years, you've probably seen a lot of changes for the better and for the worse. In EMS, could you talk a little bit about some of those changes? When uh, when I first started, it was a very much a the the suck it up culture. Very um, like, what do you mean you need a lift assist? Uh, and that's completely turned around. Um, 
the service I'm with now, if they even think might, you might have trouble, we're rolling two ambulances minimum. Hmm. Never mind calling for the fire department on a whim. Uh, the service I used to work for in Waterbury now has the fire department going with them on all the calls, which is fantastic for just the extra amount of hands. Um, and with regards to, to mental health, like when I first started, it was, well, this is your job. Deal with it. Um, I heard that more than once. God forbid somebody needed help. Um, and now it's becoming more acceptable. It's still not where it needs to be. We have a ways to go, but it's much better than when I started. Well, Steve, uh, you know, kudos for being in this profession for 20 plus years. Um, you know, it's amazing to, uh, you know, just to see someone who's still loves doing what they do in as a paramedic. And uh, so I salute you for that. And I'm, I'm curious what um, what helped you to stay connected with that uh, commitment to being of service? Um, my mom, every time we went on vacation, we would always go to Cape Cod and rent a cabin, cottage, whatever you want to call it. And I remember the day before, the day we left, we'd pack up the car. Then we spent an hour scrubbing the cabin. And we, every year we'd tell her, like, they pay people to do this. And she would always look at us and say, you should leave a place better than you found it. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of stuck. I've always wanted to, to make something better. Um, even on in EMS, like there's a lot of times in EMS, all I'm doing is keeping an eye on you, making sure you don't get worse and giving you a ride to the hospital. I'm not actively doing anything. But what if I take that time and I could make you smile with with a bad dad joke or some some humor aimed at myself? Mm -hmm. um, just do something to make your situation even a little bit better is what I kind of always try to do. I'm sure that your patients are very grateful for you, Steve. Just most. knowing you. <laughs> most of them are. But knowing you, I, I think your demeanor probably works so well in the back of that ambulance. little bit um, and talk about, so I think at some point you did seek some EAP services. Yes. Um, Can you I was talk to us about that? Sure. Um, I responded to a fire in Waterbury um, and there was a pediatric fatality. And this was my first real experience with um, anything traumatic that I took home. Uh, and so I had a good friend of mine who is now one of my mentors who is in the mental health field and she would always check in every once in a while. Like, Hey, how's work? Like you mentioned like bad crash last week. You're good. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I called her and the conversation went like this. I was like, Hey, remember that fire I told you about? She's, she's like the pediatric fatality. I'm like, yep. And she goes the one three weeks ago. So now she's getting annoyed. Yeah. That one. She goes, okay. I'm like, well, I'm kind of having nightmares a lot every night since hmm. uh, she's like, okay, you waited way too long. 
yeah, I realize that now. Um, <laughs> so I called EAP, get an appointment, and I sit down with this um, counselor. And it wasn't the first time I'd been in a counselor's office. How I got sober was one-on-one with a addiction specialist in her office. I, I, I didn't do 12-step. I didn't do any of that stuff. It was nine months of working with, with uh, a therapist. So it wasn't a foreign concept to me, but I sit down. So I'm starting to, we get to know each other a little bit. She's like, why are you here? I get halfway through the story and I look over because I was telling the story, kind of like looking, looking away and accessing my memory. I look over at her and she is like ugly crying. Like there's mascara running down her face to the point where I'm like, now I'm in character for more. Like, oh my God, are you okay? Hmm. Um, and I definitely could not continue to, to get to work with her. Um, so my, my, my EAP experience was less than stellar. I did end up finding a counselor in Waterbury who wasn't affiliated with the EAP, who before he was a, a therapist was a respiratory therapist and used to do critical care runs with the ambulance. So he had a little cultural competency that I could work with, mm-hmm. and he was able to get me to where I needed to be. That's great. You know, we talk, we've talked about that on this podcast before, the importance of first responders being with a therapist who understands the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so much behind what people do in police, fire, EMS, dispatch, corrections that, you know, you can't afford to be, because it's your 911 and it's urgent, you can't afford to be the caretaker of the therapist. You need someone who mm-hmm. can handle your subject matter, um, who has some wherewithal about what you're talking about and isn't stopping you and asking you to describe all the acronyms and what do they mean and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and your example is just another example that we've heard of that. And it's not necessarily EAP, but, um, could be any therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and our trauma team, which really try to address that we're holding a conference later this month for other therapists who don't work with first responders to educate them, um, on the culture and to help them be a little bit more culturally competent, which I love that word you use. Moving Forward from that experience uh, that you had, um, how's your connection changed with mental health professionals over the course of your career, and what what influence have they had? So after that, I like I'd always heard about. I mean, I'd heard about PTSD. I'd heard about trauma stuff through my mental health connections, but that really made it real for me. Like, okay, this is a real thing, and I sort of became like a little mini advocate for those around me um, with a lot of it with just like, Hey, how's your stress level? What are you doing? To, what are you doing to empty your bucket? What do you are like? Hey, that was a bad call. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of where I stayed for a while. And then I was starting to look outside EMS and my original plan for some reason was, well, I'll go to nursing school. Cause that's usually the transition is paramedics to become nurses. Um, but then I really liked mental health. So I was like, so maybe down the road, I'll go to school and become a therapist. And a friend of mine called me on. She's like, why do you have that career in the middle if you're not really excited about it? Because nursing school is expensive. And I was like, it's a really good point. So I applied to Westcon and started getting my psychology degree. Um, graduated and started my MSW. So you're training to be one of us, which we love. We need more of us here. Mm -hmm. 
I unloaded 32 years of emotion. This job isn't a joke, and it can hurt you. How does yoga or meditation help with that? Coming to terms with who you are. You know, nobody calls us because they're having a good day. It's really the suicide that becomes a huge issue. People are more trustworthy with the dog. Sleep deprivation helps them either be better or worse. Completely secretive when we started this. So it's pretty much taboo. Take care of the people next to you. First responders really being open about what they're struggling with. If we know that, let's raise awareness. Brings you together to talk about it. And it tells you you're not alone. So you've been part of a group called Frontline CT. Can you talk a bit about how that got started and your involvement with them and, and what the mission is of Frontline CT? Um, so years ago, I I don't remember what put the idea in my head, but I came home. I was in school, so I'm, I'm going to school halftime, working. I have two children, both of whom are out of the, almost out of the house now. They're adults now, but at the time they were still in high school. And I come home and I tell my wife, I'm like, we need a peer support, a first responder peer support program in Waterbury. And she looked at me and went, no, because you need to sleep. And I was like, oh, she's like, it's needed. You can't do it. And I'm like, you're right. So fast forward a couple of years, one of my coworkers was taking a um, master's in business administration, I think it is. And he had to do some volunteer work. So he came to me, he's like, what can we do? And I'm like, I just literally read a paper like the week before saying how 50% of first responders don't want to access service through their own service. So they don't want to go to EAP because then their bosses know um, or their coworkers could find out, or they just know that EAP sometimes is terrible. So I was like, well, I just read this fact so we can maybe set up something somewhere they can go. That's not affiliated with anybody. And He's like, if you do the education stuff and I do all the paperwork, does that work for you? And I was like, that totally works for me. <laughs> um, and that's how we got started and just started collecting people who wanted to be a part of it. And um, so talk a little bit more about Frontline's mission. Like what, what are some of the things that you offer in terms of resources and services? Dan's, uh, that Dan's our president, Dan Skelly, uh, paramedic. He, his what he wanted to address was he was shocked at the um, first responder suicides, the, the level of first responder suicides. And we've had a couple within the greater Waterbury area, a couple of people we were affiliated with, uh, unfortunately. Um, so that was, he's like, how do we do that? And I'm like, okay, well, let's attack stigma around it, uh, getting help. Let's educate people on trauma. And let's provide these peer support network. So if the idea is eventually once we get up and running enough is to have like a cop calls us because he wants to talk to me, we get him with a cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, a paramedic calls, we're going to get you with a paramedic. A firefighter calls, we're going to get you with a firefighter. Um, right now, we're just, we're still training volunteers. We might not be able to match that perfectly, but that that's our ultimate goal is to get you who you need to help you short term or say, Hey, this isn't working for you. Let's get you to somebody who can help you. Somebody like Bonnie and we're vetting our entire list of people we're going to refer to. And are your, are your um, firefighters and police, are they active, retired or a combination? um, I'll take anybody, Hmm. anybody who wants to still be involved. I was actually just talking the other day. I ran into one of my old supervisors who's a retired paramedic firefighter. And I was like, you want to get involved? And he's like, call me tomorrow. 
He's he's both feet in, just me barely scratching the surface. I think the retirees would actually be beneficial because they've got a ton of the experience and the in the first responder world, like the young guys look up to the old guys, like they have us on this pedestal. Um, which actually, in my case, sometimes I find almost uncomfortable. Like, dude, I put my pants on just like you do. Re- relax. Um, but it, you get the old guys telling them it's okay to have feelings after a call. It might work a little better. Right, right. And you know, you've got, you've got uh, sorry, Bonnie. Uh, I was going to say you've got um, people with decades of experience mm-hmm. and wisdom uh, knowledge and, you know, probably street smarts that can be mentors or coaches to uh, younger uh, medics, EMTs, firefighters, police, and, uh, and would get the respect that you're talking about, Steve. It really would, uh, it would certainly make, uh, make it a very good match to put somebody who's retired, put their time to use and, and keep them in a mode of being of service. And then it'd be a win-win for both. Mm-hmm. I think you're also feeding two birds with one seed because you're giving the retirees something to focus on and a way for them to feel connected and back in the game, even though they're not in that ambulance or in that rig, they are able to contribute and feel a part of the process again, which I think a lot of retirees struggle with. They crave that. And quite honestly, that's why we see suicides and a lot of difficult things happen in people's retirement because they're all of a sudden disconnected from that piece of their identity mm-hmm. and that profession. So I like the idea of using retirees for that too. So you talked a little bit about seeing PTSD, um, seeing suicidality. Are there other points that you would like to share about the mental health of first responders that you're seeing firsthand with frontline CT? Um, I'm seeing, and this, this is kind of frustrating. So I'm seeing a lot of people come up to us and be like, this is great. This is so needed. This is, this is just what people need. I'm like, okay, well, well how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Hmm. I'm absolutely fine. I have no issues. I'm like, you've been in EMS for 26 years. <laughs> right. And you're absolutely <laughs> fine. And that's, that's, that's the line you want to go with. Okay. Or it's a great idea. It's so needed. Cool. You want to, you want to volunteer? Oh, I can't do that. Well, even if you want to be a peer support person, we have plenty of other things we can we can do. No, I can't do that. But it's great you're doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Those those two things are a little a little frustrating. But I'm seeing like the younger generation are coming in more open to having these discussions, which is mm-hmm. um good to see. Good to see. They're much more um willing to like I I give I've given the the education presentation to EMT classes four classes at this point and every one of them are all like so can I have your card cuz I want I I want somebody to talk to if I have a problem sure take a card uh whereas you give a presentation to an older group of providers chances are you spread a whole bunch of cards on the table they're all going to be there at the end mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it, it besides uh, besides generational um how else can we try to change the stigma around mental health within the responder community? Um, we're, we're doing it through social media and through the, the trauma education program. There's a whole part of my presentation that um, deals with stigma. And basically we talk about, you know, what do you guys think mental illness is? And a couple answers come out and I'm like, it's an issue with a body system. So somebody who takes an antidepressant because their brain needs them to take an antidepressant is just like a, a diabetic taking insulin. Nobody looks twice at the diabetic needing insulin. 
You don't look at somebody who has a broken arm and say, well, just get out of bed and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the more we talk about it and the more we attack these stereotypes, the better, the easier it's going to be for people to have these conversations. In the in our trauma program, we talk about, um, in the presentation, we talk about past traumatic events can make you more likely to be traumatized. And to try to normalize that conversation, I throw my stuff on the table. I'm like, at this point, my, my daughter heard me practicing and she's like, you have no shame at 49. I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> I'm like, this is me. Take it or leave it. But she's like, you just told her you're going to tell a room full of people about how you quit drinking. I'm like, yep. Cause maybe that might make it okay for somebody to step up to me and say, Hey, I'm having a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're walking the walk and talking the talk. That's another thing that I address in the trauma education program too, is how you speak matters. Words matter. So if you come back from your call and you're talking in a non-professional way, um, maybe even dehumanizing the psych patient, if the guy in the day room with you is struggling with something, you are now not a safe person for him to go talk to. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think just being an EMS myself, we throw these terms around or the people around us throw these mm-hmm. terms around like, Oh, he was a whack job. Oh, that patient was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are all of these euphemisms and things that are said on such a normal basis. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that if we like your, your point is if we want to start changing that, we need to stop using those words mm-hmm. because there's no such thing as crazy. Mm-hmm. People have mental health issues and they need treatment. And whether that's us or whether it's the patients we serve, we need to create this level playing field. Because I think the more, in my observation in doing EMS for over 22 years, is the more you kind of separate the clientele or the patients from yourself, the more the disconnect is going to be. But if you really looked at everybody as we are all humans, first responders and patients, and we all need help from time to time, we all need this mental health support. Um, then I think we would take more of that stigma away too. Yeah. I, I've had like, I've, I, I try to address it on an individual basis when I see it. Yeah. And one of my former coworkers that I now work with now, so we've, we've been working together over 20 years. I called him on it one day. He goes, well, you used to do that. I'm like, yeah, I used to. And now I don't because now I know better. I'm like, right. I, dude, I totally used to, I used to be horrible about it. And now I know better. And now I know what it can do. So this, that's why I'm, pointing out to you if we do this and he's like oh okay still not sold but like i'm just as guilty as everybody else is doing it yeah there's so much power in that though like just to to even have that conversation with a partner or a crew that you're sitting with to shine the light that way is something different that they haven't heard before
Steve, I know you've done some research probably, you know, as part of your studies uh, in your uh, bachelor's and your master's. What are you seeing out there um, in terms of first responder mental health and what kind of numbers or research have you uh, discovered? Uh, I love pointing out this one. So 83% of EMS responders screen for some PTSD symptoms. So you may not have enough to qualify for the actual diagnosis, but some of it's there. Um, our PTSD rates are three to four times higher than the general population. Our rates of depression is a little over 3%, uh, three times higher than the general population. Um, and 44% of all first responders will screen positive for some significant mental health issues. It's, I, I equate it when I talk to people like trying to do our work and not collect stuff is like trying to go swimming without getting wet. You, you can't do it. You can't wade through what we see and not collect things. Right. Do you think that sometimes those collections of things manifest, maybe not in the classic telltale symptoms that people record or that we look for, but, but even in just how a parent might raise a child, you know, something as simple as your child wants to get a bike and you as the first responder parent say, you know, not even in my driveway will you go without a helmet on because I've seen a kid who's had their head run over or the things that we know, um, I think can manifest in those other ways in our life that we probably don't really think about very much. But I think in parenting, in intimate partner relationships, and even at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mother-in-law said when my kids were little, she's like, your job can suck the fun out of everything. <laughs> Um, that's a quote. Um, my kids don't do carnival rides like quasi or like, like compounds. That's fine. But carnival, the way they get taken apart, put together, Oh no, that ain't happening. Um, yeah. both my kids reported in much more than they probably had to. And I explained to them both, like both my kids, I trust both my kids very much. My son would go riding his bike around town. I'm like, look, when you get to so-and-so's house, I need you to just text me. You're there. Right. And a couple times he gave me feedback. I'm like, dude, it's not about you. It's about what, where my head goes if you don't check in. And he goes, oh, you go me under a car, don't you? I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay, I'll check in. I'm like, it's right. not about you. It's about my job. Right. right. Uh, so yeah. So there's definitely yeah. been things like that in the uh, in the house. Yeah. Like house has to be locked up. Yep. Like you know, like when first floor windows need to be closed. Mm -hmm. Gotta make sure you've got uh, first aid kits on every floor and uh, fire extinguishers. <laughs> My wife makes fun of me. I'm amazingly bad at having first aid supplies in the house, <laughs> but I'm really good at I'm really good at improvising. Thanks, thanks to the army. Yeah, like we don't we don't we don't have a four by four, but get me some toilet paper and some duct tape. We're good. I know firemen that do a fire full fire inspection of a hotel when they go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Or travel with smoke detectors in case, you know, there's not a working one there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, Steve, I totally relate to what you're saying, too, about, you know, when your kid is starting to drive or you're talking to them about buying a car. Like, we've seen so many horrific uh, MVAs and injuries and, you know, what the mechanics are that when you think about your loved one in a vehicle, it's like that's traumatic itself. Right. We're kind of mm -hmm. yeah. traumatized by the, you know, the possibility of something right. really bad happening to them. And I guess we pass some of that energy along uh, in the process. I tried to always explain it to the kids. Like, look, I, it, it's not you, it's me. 
<laughs> but if you don't do this, then my head's going to go from really not nice places. So if you just do this and make everybody's life easier and they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know I have something similar. It, it Along those lines, it's more like, okay, you know that my number one thing in the world is safety. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know. <laughs> but it's uh it's hard to convince your kid to buy a Hummer, you know, when they want a Toyota. That's the, <laughs> that's where the yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have my my family has seen a couple times. I, David, I don't know if you have experienced this, but like they, my daughter calls it paramedic face. It's like all of a sudden it's like I'm at home, I'm relaxed. All of a sudden something happens and I'm in work mode, and she's like, "Your face changes." <laughs> um. Shopping with my wife a couple weeks ago, there was a guy who I'm not sure exactly what he was on, but he was on something walking around the store. And all of a sudden she looks at me, she's like, why are you, okay, what did you see? Mm. I'm like, he's over there. Don't worry about it. You shop. I'm watching him. He's, you're fine. (laughs) But there's an example of how first responders are hyper vigilant, even when they're not at work. We're always Mm -hmm. anticipating wherever we are, whether it's home or in the public, we're always anticipating the, and watching the people and the environment for changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're just scanning for, you know, something that may be unsafe or some, That's right. you know, some pending, you know, right. I guess we're used to putting the pieces together um, yes. through situational awareness and then we, uh, we just carry it with us. Mm-hmm. We are. You know, I think too, in general, that first responders are just very observant people mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. very present in their brain and their body most of the time, you know, unless we're talking about dissociations and things like that, but for the most part, very, very present. And so what you, what I might see in the grocery store from a mile away, you know, your average person is looking at what cereal they want today. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, I think that we're very, very present and observant all the time. And I think that's partly why the job can be exhausting for people. And they also pick up more symptoms over time because there's no glossing over, you know, everything is, I think very intensely observed, intensely Mm -hmm. felt, Um, you know, and one could argue that first responders are highly sensitive people, you know, HSPs, there's a, a lot of body of research and articles and books written of, highly sensitive people. And and I could make the argument that first responders are that, you know, we make a lot of jokes of ADHD and PTSD and all of that. But when it comes down to it, I think you have to be a sensitive person to be able to do this work. Mm -hmm. But there is that cost on the other end of it, not just the mental health symptoms that we talk about, but um, these kind of everyday mundane things as well. Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is a nonprofit alliance of mental health professionals dedicated to helping first responders heal from trauma, tragedy, and stress. We help as they manage community crises and the everyday demands of ensuring public health and safety. Established in 2011, FCTRT was formed in response to a call for emotional help from the Stanford Fire Department after a traumatic fatal fire. Less than a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting occurred, and members again served the first responder community. Most recently, COVID-19 created a need for our support. We provide free educational presentations, pro bono sessions to deal with community disasters, and an extensive referral service to trauma-informed psychotherapists. If you're a responder in Fairfield County and need help dealing with duty-related stress, please reach out to us so you can continue to do the job you love. Visit our website at fctrt.org. 
or find us on Instagram at Fairfield County TRT. Along those lines, or maybe slightly tangential to it, um, I've always found it fascinating that I've known some responders who seem to have that ability to be around when something's going down, right? Even if they're off duty, like they happen to pass by the MVA on the side of the road, they happen to be in a shopping situation and somebody gets injured or goes down with some kind of medical problem. Um, What are your thoughts on like how that works? Is it an energetic thing that we need to be problem solvers? Are we kind of attracted or what, what do you think that's about? I, I mean, we always joke in EMS, like if anybody goes down, I'm a plumber from Ohio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's the go-to line. Um, I've had to deal with this a couple of times. Like I, at this point in my career, I, as long as I'm safe and, and like the people I'm with are safe. Uh, perfect examples. We were driving on 691 and I watched a car cut three lanes of traffic and hit the guardrail at like 70 at a 45 degree angle. I'm going the opposite way. So I call it in. Hmm. The dispatcher's like, well, is anybody hurt? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like two miles away at this point. You didn't stop. No, it's not safe. Well, somebody could be hurt. I'm like, get me a fire truck to block the lane. And I'll be more than happy to go assess people. Um, I'm not going to put myself on, in the middle of 691 yeah. without even an ambulance to get people's attention. Like my wife's little mini Cooper wasn't going to draw attention for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the luxury of, of making my career. So I worked nights and I had my children days. So I got to be the primary caregiver for my kids. So the majority of the time when something like that happened, I had my kids to tend to, so I couldn't do anything or could do something very limited because I had small children. Funny story. So we're driving through town one day and all four of us are in the car and the cops have somebody in the middle of the road covered with an emergency blanket. My daughter's like, you have to go help dad. You have to go help. So I go up to a cop. I know you got a set of gloves. He's like, do you know what's going on? I'm like, my daughter wants me to help. He goes, he's a, he's a psychiatric crisis. He was running butt naked down route 68. Okay. He goes, what do you know? I'm like, I'm going to sit next to the guy next to your cops. And my daughter thinks I'm a hero and get on with my day. Once the ambulance gets here. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like, you know, it seems like a responder thing. Again, I don't know if it's because we think, you know, we want to solve problems or we attract the, uh, the, the situation where we have to solve a problem, but there's some responders that we probably have known in our careers who are, you know, like just happens to them all the time. And it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating um, how that, how that comes about. I've had that happen to me quite a, quite a few times. Um, and how I make sense of it, I think part of it is because of our vigilance. You know, mm-hmm. like we I, notice I, more. I, exactly, we notice more. We're always scanning around us, and I think honestly, a lot of people walking through life are not looking for those things, or they're not paying attention when there's a behavior change of someone twenty feet away. Um, I, I was in the middle of Central Park one day getting a hot dog in a line and I saw someone, you know, immediate altered mental status, an elderly person, and I recognized it as hyperthermia. It was a very hot day. They were dehydrated. Um, and I did decide to help. You know, we always have that choice, but my heart and soul always tell me to help. As long as I'm safe and my family's safe, I'm going to mm-hmm. get involved and do my best. Um, and that's what I did. And honestly, I think it was because I was kind of scanning the crowd and looking around and being aware of my surroundings. No one came up to me and asked me to help that day. Mm. Um, So I think it's partly the vigilance that we have 
but then there might be something there that we can't explain that we're in the right place at the right time sometime. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit more about Frontline CT. Um, Steve, what are some of the events that Frontline offers and uh, sponsors? Um, so we will come to your organization and give you our trauma presentation, which covers risk factors, uh, things you can do to mitigate your reaction to trauma. And then um, we hang out and I try to see if people are interested in being volunteers, answer any questions. There's, there's always four or five people come up with questions mm-hmm. um, and just be a presence for a little while to, if, and, and try to stir conversation. Um, and Is Frontline CT, Steve, are, are you guys looking to expand or work with other organizations that do similar work? We are, at, at this point, we're just always looking to make connections. Like I've given cards to other like department peer support people like, hey, you know, we could be a tool in your toolbox. And doing the same thing with them, like, hey, I, I was talking to a, a police officer the other day. I'm like, I don't have a cop yet. If I need somebody, can I reach out to you guys? And he's like, absolutely. So just just making connections. And everybody I've run into so far, it's it's really nice because it's not there's not any ego involved. It's all about what can we do together to get this work done. Um. And I've told people, like, look, you need us, call us. You don't need us, call us. Um, mm-hmm. I've well, talked to, that's a key I've, point, Steve, if I could interrupt, um, you know, yep. is, is setting up that resource in advance so you know it's there, you know what, you know what it's capable of. Um, so as, you know, if you're a leader in a department, you know when you have a member who's struggling with a problem or you have a situation, you've already kind of, you know, vetted mm-hmm. the, the resource. And uh, so, you, you know, make that call without having to, figure out what exactly they're going to be able to do for you. So that's, that's kind of a key point. As far as I'm concerned, the, the, the more hands we have helping this problem, the better I'm, I'm for working with anybody who will work with us. So Steve, share with us a little bit about how people can get in touch with you and frontline CT. Um, well, you've been putting our um, website up there. Mm-hmm. We're also on Instagram and my uh, frontline email is up there. So if anybody's interested in any in having us come and talk, if anybody's interested in volunteering, reach out, contact us, and somebody will be in contact with you shortly. We'll get something going. Right, so, I think what you're doing, Steve, and what Frontline CT is doing is just so needed, and it's wonderful that it's a grassroots cause. You know, these this comes from a couple of people recognizing the problem, being in the trenches, and looking to fix it. Um, and I know the Fairfield County Trauma Response Team is grateful for your work as well. We've definitely made a connection between mm-hmm. each other there. Um, and we're very grateful for what you're doing. Thank you. Well, Steve, as we wrap up, any uh, thoughts or something we didn't cover that you'd like to speak about? Um, just one thing. So the the peer support role that we're envisioning. So we'll obviously help people with issues coming from work. But if you're having trouble with alcohol abuse, yeah, my marriage is going to crap, like any, anything you need to reach out for, you can reach out for. Mm. And we will try to help you in the short term and get you to an appropriate resource in the long term. Fantastic. Well, thank you for what you're doing, Steve, and um, and wishing you all the best with your uh, your career as it uh, morphs into the next chapter. Um, 
and looks like you're, you know, setting up to be of service uh, continually. So thanks for doing all that for the responder community. Well, thank you guys for doing this and thanks for having me on. Thanks for your collaboration, Steve. Um, as we wrap up, we'd like to invite you to like and subscribe. Our YouTube channel is Responder Resilience. We're on Facebook, Responder Wellness Inc. We're also on bbsradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website is respondertv.com. Until the next time, stay safe, be kind to yourself, take care.